we are in our series entitled Invisible War. That we as believers in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in a war whether you want to be or not. There is no neutral party in, on the face of the earth. There's no Switzerland's in the spiritual battle. Either you're for God or you're for the devil. And people might say, well, hey, I'm not for God, but I'm not for the devil. But if the, the Word of God says very clearly that if you're not with God, then, you're, then you are with the devil. You might be blinded. You may not know the reality of the battle that you're in. You're just kind of passive. But believe me, you've already been in uh, a, casu- a casualty in a way because he has blinded and deceived you to see the battle that's going on all around us. And there is a battle. There is an invisible war. And the world, the Bible says very clearly that we do have three enemies. The world, this fallen world, this evil outside that is inherent within it. And it's, and it's seen in the philosophies and the values that the people that do not know Jesus uh, trumpet and value and just project and teach So that's the world. And we have the flesh. This is the evil within us. We are born sinners by nature and by choice. We are, because our our first parents had fallen, then we receive their nature. It's been passed on to us. And each one of us is born, in essence, dented, with certain disposition to, to sin in different ways. That's why some people struggle with alcoholism and others don't. That's how they're dented. Other people might struggle more with sexual immorality. Others might be uh, overeating or, out, or drug addiction, or it could be lying or gossip or stealing, whatever it might be. We all have a dent of disobedience, and we are sinners by nature. And then when, we, when you come to know Christ, God puts his spirit in you, and then begins to transform you and pull the, push those dents out, if you will. It's like taking a, a, a milk jug, and then it's, that's, you push it in, and you put a liquid, and it kind of fills it, pushes it right back out. It's the same, being filled with the spirit of God, God starts changing us from the inside out. And he gives us his spirit to battle the flesh. And we also have Satan and his demons. They're not made up. They're not mythical creatures. They are very real spirit beings, fallen angels that war against God's people. And so we've talked about the devil and his demons slightly. We've talked about the world. We've talked about the flesh. And we've talked about how to counteract it. Uh, as Joel showed us last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit helps us counteract the flesh and fight against that. And we've seen how we're going to be see, excuse me, how angels actually fight in the heavenlies because they are sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. We're going to talk about next week what angels are, what they're not, uh, how we should interact, or should we, um, their position. We're going to talk about that next week. But today we're going to talk about how to fight against the world. And one of those allies that God has given us is other believers to come alongside us. We need other, but we need one another. I mean, it's amazing. With all of the different social constructs and social media that we have, it's just amplified the loneliness that people have in their hearts. It really has. I mean, we have all this technology. We can know what's going on in the world, and yet we seem to be more lonely and hopeless than we've ever been as a people. And see, God has, has ordained it and decreed it that we are not to be alone. And yes, we're to, to, I mean, he created that obviously within the covenant of marriage, specifically between a husband and wife. But it's even greater in that, I mean, we need people. I mean, what's the, one of the worst things that you can do to a prisoner? Put him in solitary confinement. To be alone from any individuals, from any talking to anybody. And we need other believers. Now, some people will say, hey, I'm all good. I don't need to church. You know, I've seen the church. It's messed up. And yeah, it has been. It's a, it's a spiritual triage center. And you're going to encounter other patients that are sick but we're all trying to get to the great physician. We have to remember that. It's not filled with perfect people. It's people that are in process and are trying to follow God, and they're going to mess up, 
But God is working with us and changing us from the inside out. So we have to remember that as we talk about this church. Now, I remember talking about the importance of church several years ago when I was pastoring in Chicago. And in the middle of my message, I grabbed this big guy. His name was Aaron. Aaron is about six foot three, 275 pounds. He was a weightlifter, and he was into martial arts. He was ripped. He looked like Lou Ferrigno. This guy, I mean, seriously, I could take my shirt and clean it on his abs, okay? That's just how strong this guy was. He was a hulk of a guy. And I, I, I said, Aaron, in the middle of my message, I said, come on up here. I want you to stand right here. Aaron had worked in the youth ministry where I was, uh, one of the, I, I was the leader of the youth ministry, and, and we joked around a lot. And there's, there's a kid named Zach. Zach was like a freshman in high school, maybe 115 pounds, wiry kid. And Zach was always that kid that was pretty smart but could get on your nerves. But at times he, was, he, he did it in such a way that it was cute for a little bit. You ever had that kid? He's just ornery, but you're like, man, I want to, oh, you drive me nuts, but I still love you, but you drive me crazy. And so he was always driving Aaron crazy. So I brought him up on the platform, and I said, I have this experiment that I want to do right now. And Aaron's looking at me like, what are you going to (laughs) do? And I said, Zach, I want you to hit him as hard as you can right now. And Zach's eyes got big like, this is Christmas. (laughs) And Aaron's like, I'm going to kill you, you know. He's a big guy. And I said, I want you to football tackle him right now on the platform. And, and I said, Aaron, I don't want you to fight it. I want you just to stand there. And, and Zach didn't even have to think. He just, boom, he went after that guy, and he knocked the guy over. And the, Aaron got up, and he looked at me like, you're the biggest idiot. I, I, why did you do that? And I said, okay, Aaron, thank you for volunteering for that. Zach, thank you for that. And I said, I want to grab some men of the church. So I grabbed five men of the church. And I said, I want you to surround Aaron, and I want you to lock your arms. And now, so they, these guys surrounded Aaron, and they locked him, okay, just like this. And I said, Zach, I want you to hit Aaron now. And he tried. He kept trying to get through. He tried to crawl between their legs. He tried to go over the top of them, and these guys just held firm. They couldn't get through. And I said, this is a picture of the church. With him, by himself, I don't care how strong he is, the devil can get to you. When you have other believers around you, holding on for you, fighting for you, the devil can't get to you as well. See, we need the church. God has ordained the church to come alongside one another. And we're an imperfect people. And you're going to have personalities. You're going to have conflicts. It's not a perfect place. But it's through the church that God has said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we need one another. We do. We need to share with one another. We need to grow with one another. And that's one of the things that the Bible talks time and, uh, time and time again about, that we need one another. And that's what Paul understood. Paul understood that there are false teachers that, uh, that, are, uh, that are agents of the devil that are coming in and trying to turn you away from your pure and undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. And he, 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 he was one of the leaders, and he says, no, you have to learn how to defend against this. You have to learn how to protect the body. You have to come alongside. And he's writing to this church at Galatia, which is actually in modern-day Turkey, because this church, these were many new converts, and they come into this new uh, group called The Way. That's what Christianity was called initially, The Way. And many people considered it a sect of Judaism. They're like imperfect Jews. And so Jews would be like, oh, I'm glad these Gentiles are wanting to follow God, but they need to be corrected a little bit. Their theology's off. They need to follow the law. And Paul says, no, you don't. Christ has fulfilled the law. The purpose of the law was to show you your sin and lead you to Jesus. That was the purpose of it. And, but these Jews kept coming along, these Judaizers, that's what they were called, would come along and try to make them do the things of the law. And Paul would battle against them and say, don't do that. 
I want to show you how to live. I want to show you how to be the church and protect yourselves, not just from them, but from all people that are coming against you to try to remove you from your pure and undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. And so he writes in Galatians 6, and I want you to follow along with me as we go through this passage. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, try your best to listen in. Uh, Maybe you're not a great reader, just try to follow along with me as I do read the Word and walk through this passage with us. And it's page 975 in your pew Bible. Uh, If you have a large print Bible, that's page 1239. But Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, I want to stop and, f- and focus on this for a moment. He says, brothers, he's saying, these are for the Christians that I'm talking to you about. If someone who claims Christ is caught into sin, that they've been, they've been uh, like, in essence, tripped on one of those bear traps you see in the movies where they clip the ankle of somebody, and they've been caught into sin and they can't get it out. Now, the idea is, is he says, you should restore such one. The idea is bring him back to fellowship. Now, we don't, he doesn't mean bring back to fellowship someone who's not repentant. He's saying that one of the biggest acts of love, first of all, and it's implied in the verse, is that you have confronted them about their sin. Do you know that's one of the most loving things that we can do, is confront someone with their sin? In a spirit of love, by the way, not a Jesus grenade. Sometimes we do those Jesus grenades, like, sinner! No, it's, it's talking to them, saying, I love you as a person. You're not a project to me. You're a person, and I care for you. And I want you to know the path that you are going on right now is a destructive one. And you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt your family, and you're going to hurt those around you. And I love you, and I don't want to see you go that way. See, it's acting in love. You know, some theologians believe that Paul's letters, and he's written several others, letters as the Holy Spirit inspired and carried him along, they believe that they're organized around three themes. And it's woven. They're like threads throughout each of his letters. And it's faith, hope, and love. Every single time. And it goes through every one of them. It may not be said explicitly, faith, hope, and love, as it is in 1 Corinthians, but the premise and the idea is woven throughout each one. And here, he's talking about love. This is how we as believers act in love. If we're to find victory in this spiritual battle that we find ourselves in, we have to learn how to act in love toward one another. That's the first point I want you to write down in your notes. I have two major points today, and then we have some subpoints underneath it. But the first one is acting in love, because we are to be Christians of love. And that's something that, it's, it's, I mean, we have a hard time with at times. Because we see unbelief, we see compromise, we see people turning away from who the truth of who Jesus is, and we get irritated and agitated. And we, we want to just lash out, and, and it's hard to love them in the midst of that. But that's exactly what God's called us to do. When Jesus was on the cross, did he start yelling at people? He loved even to the end. Even the very end. Father, forgive them. I mean, he's saying, Father, forgive them. He's still loving, even with the last breath of his life. Even though he knew just what was going to happen to him, he knew it was coming. He saw even his disciples, those closest to him, turn away. He held on, and he was loving to the very end. And he's given us an example that we are to love. Love, even no matter what we do as we interact with a culture and unbelief and we see people turning away from God, we are to act in love. Now, acting in love does not mean compromising truth. We see some people doing that. They're saying, I'm acting in love, but they compromise truth in doing it, saying that, that God's okay with this. No, God's word is firm. That heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. No matter how much people try to legislate, try to write it out, cut it out, you can't change what God has said. 
You can cut up a Bible, you can sell it, and you can go on CNN, but it doesn't change the truth that God's Word will endure forever. And He's telling us that we are to act in love. And how do we, and how should we act in love? And He starts here and He says, brothers, you should restore such a one gently. The idea is He is repentant, that we've confronted, him, confronted the person in their sin and they have repented. Now the Bible says how we are to confront, by the way. First of all, I'm going to go to my brother. Let's say Dennis is my brother, and he's been sinning, and he's, he's doing something really bad. And I, I notice it, and I'm like, okay, I, I don't talk to other people about it. I don't do that. And say, did you see what Dennis did? I think you should pray for him. That's called Christian gossip, folks. We just put a godly tag on it to make it acceptable. We have to be careful. So I come to him, and I say, Dennis, I see this is what's going on in your life. And he could say, yeah, it is. Big deal. I'm not changing. Why do I have a problem? I mean, I love you. I don't want to see you do this. And now the next step is to go, hey, I, I could go to my brother Ernesto. I could go to my brother James. And I'd say, hey, I, I mean, this is what I've seen of Dennis's life. And have you guys seen this? Yes. It's not a gossip then because we're confronting it to change, not to disparage or bring him down. And they said, we've seen that too. We've been concerned. So let's go talk to him. So I've taken two or three brothers and we've confronted him. And he says, you know, thanks for talking to me, but I'm not changing. Okay, now we amp it up. The next step is we bring him in front of the entire body uh, of the local church. And then if he doesn't repent, then we remove him from the fellowship of the church. And people say, well, that's awful. You'd really do that? You guys practice that? You better believe we do. Because we've had instances of individuals. We had a man who, uh, I mean, I, I remember an instance some time ago where a guy had left his wife and his children, and you think we're just going to go let him go off and leave those, that wife and kids behind? That's an unloving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to say, hey, buddy, you're, you're off. We love you, but you're destroying, you're hurting your wife, you're hurting your kids, you're going to hurt them. We're going to confront you. We want you to understand how bad this is. And then and he says, I don't care. We bring more people along, completing with him. And then we bring it for the church. We're not, we're not here to damage his reputation or, or so that he might experience condemnation. We want him to have restoration. That's what we want. We want him to come back. We want that family to remain intact. We want him to love his children, to be there. See, and if he, he comes back and he does say, I repent, I am broken. Now, some churches would go, too late, you're done. We're going to punish you. As a matter of fact, I've known of some churches that have done that where people come in and, and they're then repentant and they make them basically, I mean, not literally, but like crawl up on their knees and then wash the feet of certain people as a way of humiliating them. That's not what the Bible says. He says you should restore him. The idea is set the bone, set it right, and do it gently in a spirit of love. So we are to restore the repentant because we don't want them to be, be left alone outside of the body because they, if they are, they're, they're going to be a casualty. The devil's going to come after them. They need that body to come alongside them and love on them. That's what we need to do is restore the repentant. But notice also what he says here in verse 2. He says, keep watch on yourself. Because you might, he might say, hey, we confronted this person in sin. Hey, we're such a spiritual people. You know, we're, that never happened to us. Pride comes before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. So you have to be careful. He says, keep watch over yourself because you are susceptible to sin just like everyone else is. If you think that you are beyond sinning, you are in a very dangerous place, my friend. Every one of us in this room has that capacity to do something completely wrong or evil. You say, well, that'll never happen to me. I have seen too many people, too many families, too many leaders that said that, and then they fall. I can fall. 
That's why I need people to pray for me, to come alongside me. And I have to know my own flesh and guard against it. And that's why we have to make sure that we are fighting and dealing real in real way. We have to protect against pride. Protect against pride. That's the second point that you can write down. We have to protect against pride because our pride thinks, I am so spiritual that I can't be touched. I'm holy. I float across the room. Billy Graham calls me for advice. You know, that's how we think we are. We think we're impervious, and you're not. We're not. None of us are. So we have to guard against pride because we have to be careful ourselves. Even when we're interacting with them, we have to be careful because their sin that they're struggling with, we could easily get wooed to do. That's why we, it says you who are spiritual. The idea is you are filled with the Spirit. You who are so dependent and focused on God in this instance that you are fully aware that you are fighting and you are resisting the flesh. So we have to be very, very careful of that. We have to protect against pride. But that's not all. Keep looking at your text. In verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need to bear one another's burdens, which means that we need to help those who are hurting. Now this word here is a metaphor that refers to helping those who are burdened down by troublesome moral faults. These are people that seem to always be struggling. And, and, we, we, and, and this is hard to do. This is hard to do because there are some people that they, God works with them. They seem to be freed, they're, they're, and they, they go on, and they're doing great helping other people. There are some people that seem to matter how hard they try, they keep struggling and struggling and struggling. And he's saying here, bear with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Come alongside one another. Now, it doesn't mean always cater to their whims, but it means, uh, it means if they are trying to fight that sin, if they are struggling against it, then you should help them. See, it's, it's, it's one thing. It's, it's like a person trying to get on a horse. You ever tried, anybody ever ridden a horse? Okay. You know, they make it look so easy in the movies. I was up at Silver Birch Ranch, and I was thinking, uh, that I went on a horseback ride with my daughter. My daughter just gets right up. I'm like, I'm an adult man. I've seen all my, I've seen Tombstone. I've seen Wyatt Earp. I've seen all the John Wayne movies. I can get on this thing. I look like an idiot. I'm trying to there, swinging my leg up, pulling me down. The people are like, "Sir, we need a bigger horse." You know, I'm trying to get on this horse, and 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 I get off the horse, and and I and I hold on to the saddle because I don't want to fall off the other way. And I'm like, "Where's the? Where's the? Can you tilt like a like a like a steering wheel, like a tilt wheel? Is there a thing for that on here?" No, sir. <laughs> There's not. You just get to ride the horse. And it goes along, and I'm like, "Okay, we're doing fine." When it's just the trot, 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 trot. And then there's times where people get ahead. And then the horse starts really trotting. And, and it, I feel like I'm in, I mean, I feel like a bull rider. <laughs> I'm going to wrap my heart, woohoo, you know, and I feel like I'm going to fall off. And, you know, I've seen people fall off horses. It's, it's a scary thing to see. Really, it is, seeing someone fall off a horse. And the idea here is, in this passage is, is saying that, you know what, someone's going to keep getting on the horse. They might fall off, and they're going to fall off. But they want to get back on to you to help them get back on. You're to bear with them. You're to help them continually do that. It's when they fall off the horse and they stay in the mud. That's when we say, if they're not willing to fight anymore, that's when we say, hey, we want you to fight. And they're saying, I don't want to fight anymore. I give up. I'm not going to do this anymore. That's what we have to say. Okay, now we're not going to do that, but we're going to come alongside. As long as you're fighting, we're going to fight with you. That's the idea. Bearing one another's burdens, coming alongside one another, helping those who are hurting and that are fighting and they're struggling against their sin. We need to help one another push on to Christ. Now let's move on. Look at verse 4. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own 
load. Now, what, what is that really saying here? He's saying that we're to test, authenticate, and evaluate our work, the good that we are doing, not as a basis of pride for us, so that others aren't having to do it for us, and then we're not bringing other people down, but we're doing our best to carry our own load. You need to check and see, is, the, is your work, is that what you're doing, is that really of God? Are you really trying to do it for God? Are you really trying to live for God, or are you trying to get it so other people will look at you better? See, we're masters at deceiving ourselves, and we're masters at taking uh, our sinful desires and masking it in spiritual language. We have to guard against that, because we want to make sure that we, I mean, we're the only ones that know ourselves really well. We know what's really in our heart. I mean, think about it. If you ever had a situation that you're dealing with, and you share it with a friend, you're really struggling, and you share it with a friend, and you're, you're angry about something that someone did to you, or a situation that you're in, and, and you share your opinion with them, and, and they agree with you, right? Because they, And they're going to agree with you. And you feel even better about yourself because they agree with you. And you feel justified for having this opinion now because they agree with you. But the problem is, is that, I mean, they want to help you. And you're only given your side of it. And you've slanted the story in such a way that they will agree with you. See, if you're going to be really honest with yourself, and if you knew you were being honest, they would say something different to you. You ever had that happen? I'm sure that we all have. We have, we have a tendency to get people to agree with us, to, to side with us. And we have to be honest with ourselves. And the idea here is being honest. Test your work. See, really evaluate why you're doing what you're doing, why you're living what you're living, and make sure you're doing it. You're not relying on someone else. You're not trying to, to cheat or claim something that is yours that it's not, but you're working, you're living for God, you're doing what he wants you to do, and you're not deceiving yourself. You need to authenticate what is yours, which means test for what is true. We need to be testing for what is true doing what God has made us to do in our families, schools, workplaces, and neighborhoods. And we started off talking about how we are to be acting in love, but now we're going to talk about how we're to be living for the Lord. So we talked about acting in love, how we are to act in love to one another. And if you notice, even how that's arranged, it talks about mutual accountability, personal responsibility, mutual accountability, personal responsibility. It's a picture of the church. Each one of us is to be doing what God made us to do. We all have a responsibility, and we're all accountable to one another is we're doing what God wants us to do. So we need to make sure that we are living for the Lord. And how, what does that look like? How, we are to, how are we to live for the Lord as Christ's church? What does, that, what does that mean in the midst of our society? As Christians, I mean, we need to know how we are to live and help other people fight this invisible war. Now, we need, I mean, if you think about that, you're in a war, and you have to understand we have enemies and we have allies. Okay, now on my allies, and even in my side, who are my leaders? Where do I report? What's my purpose? These are questions you ask yourself. For the, my friends that have been in the military, you know that. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a chain of command. There's, you, you have to know who you're going to and who reports to who and who's in charge of what. Now, in war, if, if someone is uh, fighting against someone another, who are they going to target? Are they going to target the foot soldiers or are they going to try to take out the leaders? Take out the leaders. And that's what happens in God's church all the time. Satan comes after leaders comes after leaders because he knows if he gets the leader he can get the people and that's why you hear stories all the time of some pastor falling having a moral indiscretion committing adultery and i see it way too much or stealing from the church or committing some type of crime because the devil comes after leaders we're not impervious in fact probably in more of a battle at times 
And here, he's saying if living for the Lord means taking care of your leaders. And he says here, if we look at the text, he says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The idea is, is the people that are being taught the word of God are to share. And here the idea is actually financial. Most scholars say it's financial, that they're helping the pastor live in such a way. Not that he's living high, you know, a, a wealthy life, but he is being able to be free to do ministry. And it's the idea of paying the pastor. Now, I'm grateful at our church. I, I'm, you guys have graciously, you've been so gracious to my family. We, ha- we, are, we, are, we are good because you guys have taken this to heart and been faithful. And so I'm happy. Um, not that I never could have a raise or anything, but um, no, I, we're happy. We're being taken care of. And it's, it's enough to live in the community. But the idea is, is take care of our leaders. And I am so grateful to be blessed by you. Uh, to be able to live in the community, to be able to serve, and be able to be free to do ministry in a full-time way. And I'm so grateful for that. And thank you for that. But that's the idea. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. That We need to provide for our pastors, our leaders, those who are laboring to preach and teach the word of God. That's one way that we're living for the Lord, is we're, we're giving back to him. We're giving unto the Lord our tithes and our offerings so that God's name might be proclaimed. Now, that's not all. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from, from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, there are two things that we can see from these two verses. First of all, in God's body, we have to learn to sow to the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Right in the rear of our church, on this little grass here, I like to call the panhandle. You've seen some gardens go up. We have about 44 gardens that are there. Little garden beds, people from different cultures, people in our community, people from our church are farming these gardens. The idea is of sharing the truth of who Jesus is, coming into proximity with people who may not even know a single Christian, and building relationship as we guard along together to share who Jesus is. And not only that, but to give people dignity that are coming from places where they they probably can't farm, they're not in an environment to do it, and here to grow that themselves and sell it or live off of it, whatever it might be. And in, as I want these gardens go in and I see people planting and I see them putting in their plants, and you know that they're sowing the seeds. And these seeds are going to grow up into beautiful plants. And there's some beautiful stuff in that garden, by the way. I mean, some, some of you out have some really great green thumbs, great at gardening. But watching these plants grow up, the idea is, is when you sow and do what God wants you to do, you're planting a seed. And that seed for God is going to grow. And one day you're going to eat of this garden. That's the idea of reaping eternal life. You're going to eat of it. And it's the idea of, of, of conveying eternal life, of living for God. And when you're doing that for God, God's going to honor that. But the opposite is true. I mean, we're to sow to the Spirit, yes, but we also need to fight the flesh. Fight the flesh. That's the next part that you can see within your notes. We're to fight the flesh. Because he says, if you're living for God, God will honor that. But if you sow to your sinful flesh, you do those acts of the flesh then you're going to eat of that fruit. And it's a poisonous fruit. It's it's a moldy, nasty fruit that's grown up that you have to eat of. That's what God's going to say. This is not an option that you will reap this and you're going to have to eat and you're going to have to pay the price for all that you have done. Every single sin, every single lie, it is not gone beyond God. And with God... There is no way that you can clear your life history with a click. 
You can't do it. It's there forever. Forever. Unless. Unless. There's a but there. That's what I love about Scripture. There's a but. And that but is God sent his son. Born in the likeness of men. Taking on our flesh. Living our life. Coming alongside us. Yet without sin. And though he was without sin, he identified with sinners. That's one of the greatest pictures that God, things that God could do is to come and identify with us in all of our guilt, in all of our shame, in all of our garbage, that he would come and identify and love us, even while we were still yet his enemies, that he would come and die for us. And then he took all of that fruit that we had done, and he eats it all, in essence. And he takes all of that, and he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. You know, there's a picture of that. There's a story, and, and perhaps you've heard this story, and it's, it's a pretty amazing story about this. There's a, and it's a, it's a true story um, um, that Tony Evans actually talks about. He, he tells a story about a, about a man who was out with his wife, and they got caught in a terrible hailstorm. It was a massive, destructive hailstorm. And the hail was actually as large as baseballs. That's how bad this hailstorm was. And under this deluge that was coming against them, the man realized that if he didn't do something, his wife would be severely hurt. So he quickly draped himself over his wife. He grabbed his wife and he just wrapped himself, draped himself over her, covering her with his own body so that instead of the storm hitting his wife, those hailstones hitting her, it hit him. So the hailstorm seemed to get bigger as the man bent over his wife protecting her. The large balls came down harder onto the man. They hurt him badly, and after a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding. This is how bad he was getting hit. Along with some spots on his head, the man tried to lead his wife to safety, but the stones were coming out faster and harder. The pounding stones took their toll. Weakened by the onslaught, the man finally couldn't, uh, he, he just collapsed over his wife. He couldn't ha- handle the pain anymore only able to shield her from the danger. And after the storm was over, the man was left with scars from where the balls had battered away at him. And the remains of sores, cuts, and abrasions would forever be reminders of him the day that he saved his wife. Now, this is a true story. Rich, it's a true story. And on the local newscast, I mean, it was so amazing of a story that it made it onto the news. And on the news, the man's wife was asked about how she felt about her experience. She said this, every time... I look at that scar on his head, on his neck, and on his ear. I love him more. Every time I see the scar, I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. See, when you and I get to heaven, Jesus will be be the only one in eternity with scars. Every time we see that scar, we're going to love him more. Because we realize what he did for us, that he took the wrath of God for you and me so that we don't have to pay the price for our sin because it's a price that we can't pay. It's a fruit that we can't eat. But he ate it. He took it down. He took the full punishment. He drank that down to the dregs, as the scripture said. He experienced God's wrath in all its fullness. Every single drop. That's love. He came to save you from your sin, not so that you can live in it any longer. 
He came to set the captives free. We need to make sure that we are living for him. Not, we have to fight that flesh. I sow to the Spirit and fight that flesh. We have to remember something about the Christian walk, that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's not going to be easy. There are going to be many casualties of people sitting right next to you that will fall, that will do things that are unheard of. There's, there's others that will do, I mean, will give it themselves in descent, and others will give and have great major victories and sacrifice themselves for God. And that's why Paul says in this text, look at this text, let us not grow weary of doing good. Because you know why? When you're doing good and you're going to see all this junk going on around you, you're going to see people giving in, and you're going to wonder and question yourself, am, what I do, am, am I making a difference? These kids that you work with this past week, and the kids would talk. And I remember walking into some of the classes, and I'd say, how are you doing? And they're like, I need a nap. Because they're weary. But you know what? Don't grow weary. Because you may not think they're listening, but I guarantee that there are some of those kids there that are listening that are hearing, that are taking it in, and God is writing it on their hearts. And he's going to transform them because of it. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give in. Even though people are falling left and right, keep marching on because God has declared his church to be victorious, that we are more than conquerors. And though we die, we do so so that others might live. Because we are more than conquerors through him who called and saved us. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. There will be casualties, but we will win through him. It's not our victory, it's his victory. We're on his team, it's not our team. I mean, you know, you see like these athletes and playing, and it's like the guys that ride the bench in an in a, in a NBA championship game. They're like, we won, yeah. We won, but don't think it's your team. It's that guy that's getting that $49.5 million contract. It's his team. He's the guy that's doing it. He's the star of the show. And we have to remember that Jesus is the star. And he gave himself. I mean, he sacrificed himself. He humbled himself. There's no million-dollar contract. He gave himself willingly and sacrificially to the point of dying for you and me. We have to remember that and hold on to that fact. We have to hold on for the harvest. We have to hold on for the harvest. Fight the flesh and hold on for the harvest. There is a harvest coming. So as a church, as we're helping people battle, don't give in. So many times I see Christians get into leadership positions and and they get excited about it and then they experience opposition. They deal with personalities. They deal with scheduling issues. They deal with people not showing up. with all these different issues and they quit. Don't quit. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on for the harvest. That's what we have to remember. I ran the marathon in 2009. I know, surprising. And I, I, remember, uh, I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to finish this race. And, and I remember getting into the last couple miles, and I had, I had a former student of mine who came out to watch me, and, and I could see him. He wanted to run with me. I see him on the sideline and encourage me to want to run. I wanted to give up. And I wasn't about to because my car was parked that way. So I had to go that way. <laughs> but I, I see him and I thought, I got courage. I was tired. I couldn't feel my legs. And I kept moving. And you know what? I got to that finish line. And they're at that finish line. They were, as soon as you crossed, they'd put a medal right over your neck. Now, the people that quit and walked off, they didn't get medals. It's only those who finish the race that get medals. You got to finish the race. You got to fight on. So the end of your life that you die or Jesus comes back and then you will be rewarded 
Hold on for that harvest. Hold on for the harvest. Now let's look at our last verse, verse 10. So then, in spite of all this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. While we are still on this earth, when God gives you that opportunity, we need to seek to serve others. We need to do good to people in our community, but especially those in the church to bless those, to continue to serve. And I have to say for all of you who served this past week, and I know that not everyone could serve at VBS this past week, but for those that served, thank you. You're living this out. And I know there's many that are serving the kingdom of God in many different ways. We need to continue to serve. While Jesus tarries, we keep fighting on. And I've heard some people say, Jesus is coming back, and they just back away from church. It's, and they're just like, I mean, literally filling bunkers. No. You're to be found faithful until he comes. Fight on. Continue to press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. I mean, seeking to serve, seek, seek to serve the Lord in our community and in our church. Are you serving? You can't be like Jesus if you don't serve. Jesus came to serve. We have to serve one another. It's not an easy job. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to serve especially other believers. Now, I want to conclude with this story. I talked to you at the, the beginning about uh, how we are without the church. And I saw this, uh, I remember hearing this story practically paid out. Anyone here ever heard of Armitage Baptist Church? It's in Chicago. Armitage Baptist Church is a very well-known evangelical church in Chicago, pastored by Charles Lyons, who's been there a long time. And in, uh, I don't know if you, you've heard the story about Armitage Baptist and some of the things that happened there in the mid-90s, but it's pretty incredible. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. Um, and uh, before I get to Armitage, there's a story. In 1992, there was an abortion doctor named Dr. David Gunn who was killed by some radical terrorist. And uh, he, because he was an abortion doctor and he wanted to protect the unborn, so he, he, he went to terrorism. That's not the solution. But that's what he did, and he killed this guy. Well, people then called for, uh, a year later, to commemorate the anniversary, called for a rally against some, uh, several Christian organizations. And uh, this one group decided that it was going to protest uh, in front of Armitage Baptist Church. So they, I mean, it was organized by uh, what was known as the Queer Nation, a group of, you know, of younger uh, homosexuals that they actually had been invited to an Easter service. They reached out to them, but they protested. They brought noisemakers into the service. They were putting condoms or prophylactics in the offering plates. And six people ended up being arrested. They caused a lot of problem with the church, and they were protesting against them. They actually had spray-painted the church and called them bigots and, and uh, said that they were racist, and they promoted hate, and, and that they were... They, it was the chant, born again bigots go away, something like that. They chanted this. Anyway, they passed out flyers into the entire community, thinking the community would come and protest with them to commemorate this, um, to commemorate this uh, you know, doctor's death. And uh, they, they, they rallied. They had all these uh, different witch organizations. I mean, every radical group that you could think was invited to protest. And they were, they were expecting hundreds of people to come out and protest. They told them to bring, to dress to impress, wear costumes, explicit whatever, do whatever to shock people. And they were going to do it on the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Now, the temptation, I mean, what would you do if that happened? Would you come to church and pray that night, or would you stay home? 
These people stood up and they said, we're going to pray. And they were nervous. They didn't know what's going to happen. I mean, there was even reports of, of rocks being thrown at the glass doors of the church. I mean, it was a lot of fear, intimidation, and things were going on. And so they said, we're going to have the prayer service anyway. We're going to pray for them. So they had the prayer service, and their people are coming in for the prayer service, and the crowds are formatting, and they're on the bullhorns. They're making all this noise, and the church is a little nervous because they're outnumbered. And like, what do we do? Let's pray. And, 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 and I mean, the people kept calling them a racist church, which is funny because they're like 30% Hispanic, 30% African-American, and then 40% white. I mean, it's a pretty amazing church in the community protesting against, uh, you know, they were working with those who were, pro, you know, promoting pregnancy centers and protesting abortion. Yet they were also speaking out against homosexuality, and they were also speaking out against gang violence. They were extremely involved in the community. And uh, what happens is, is that they're, they're praying and, and they're nervous of all these protesters that are there, fearful it's going to get violent, when a bus pulls up and all these big guys with red jackets and it says S-H-S, Sweet Holy Spirit, actually H-S-S, Sweet Holy Spirit Security. It was another church down the street. And all these big, huge guys come up and they surround the church. And they start singing hymns. And the people are like, oh, good, you know. But uh, that's still not enough. These guys are singing and just singing their hearts out to God in the south side. They're south side church, and this church is on the north side or northwest side. And they're, they're singing out, and they're, just, they're coming around to protect their sister church. And they're still a little nervous when five buses pull up from other churches, and people just stream out. And they all fill this church. There's thousands of people in there. And they're calling it, and these, they have a kids' choir, and they sit on the front steps, and they start singing praises to God. And the protesters realized that they were beaten. There's nothing they could do. And they kept calling out all this hate. And here they were just singing love for Jesus and loving these people. It's an amazing picture of what the church is. See, we need one another. When Satan comes against us, when this world fights against us and rages against us, we need to have other believers alongside us to wrap us, to pray with us, to encourage us, to say, keep fighting. To throw out, to text a Bible verse to us, to say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Commit your way to him. Or Galatians, as we see today, you're going to reap a harvest, brother, a sister. Continue on. Fight on. Don't give in and don't give up. That's what God has done. He's ordained the church to help one another and to be a light to the world. We need to be the church, folks. But you can only be the church if you know Jesus. You can be in a church and not know Jesus. You have to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins and embrace him, and he will save you and bring you into this fabulous body called the church. Imperfect though it might be, messy though it might be, but he will give you a family. He will give you encouragement, and he will use you for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we know that we are imperfect people and that we sin every day. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our sins of commission, the, thing, the wrong things that we have done, and our sins of omission, not doing the right things we should be doing. Forgive us for our apathy to those that are hurting. Forgive us for our complacency, for not doing all of those things and being addicted to our creaturely comforts than we are to proclaiming the name and cause of Christ. Lord, Lord, empower us, forgive us, and, and use us to proclaim your word. Lord, give us courage to share the truth of God in love, caring for people, not seeing them as projects, 
but loving them as people because we want them to be saved. Lord, we know that your word says that your wrath is coming to punish the acts of disobedience. Lord, help us to reach out and to wrap ourselves around others just as you wrapped yourselves around us and took the brunt of things, Lord. Though we don't need to take the wrath of God, it's already been taken, but Lord, may we sacrifice ourselves so that other people might be saved. Lord, glorify your name in our midst. And Lord, if there's someone here today who has not yet placed their faith and trust in you, but they are slaves to their sin, I pray that you show that you are the sovereign God who came to set the captives free and that you transform them. And and Lord, we claim that promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, I pray that they might call on you in repentance and faith and place their faith and trust in you, confessing you as Lord and Savior, and you will save them. Lord, glorify your name in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.